You guys ready? How about you guys open your Bibles to the book of Galatians uh, chapter 5 and uh, put your finger there and turn to the book of Philippians chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be looking at basically these two elements. Um, what we've been doing over the past few months is we've been in a series going through the book of Galatians. And uh, it's this story that Paul the Apostle wrote, or this letter that Paul the Apostle wrote to a collection of churches in a region called Galatia. And uh, what had happened was, this is a church that Paul had planted. These people, these Christians were growing in their walk with God, knowing who God was. And yet, um, these religious people came in and basically terrorized the church, destroyed the church in a lot of ways. Uh, or the Christians were on the verge of, in a lot of ways, going back to Acts or works of righteousness, rather than trusting in or leaning upon God's kindness and God's grace and God's affection and so on and so forth. And so what Paul was doing, he was trying to remind them that what God had done for them is that God had saved them. And not only that, that God had also started a good work in them. And that this work in the salvation was independent of what they did for God. In other words, um, God saves us, you and I, just like he saved the Galatians, not because of anything good that we've done, and not because of how you know, well we act or how religious we can be, but actually in spite of those things. In other words, because we don't have life, God rescues us, God saves us, and that's what God did with this Galatian group of people. And what had happened was they were falling away from the work that God had initially began, and Paul was writing to remind them that, look, God started this work in you. He's going to continue to do this work in you. And the way that God did this was that he actually placed his Holy Spirit inside of you. In other words, that God's presence lives inside of these Galatian believers. That God's presence lives inside you. You may not have known that. But that's the way that salvation works is God takes up life or residency inside you. And as a result of that, there are some characteristic uh, changes that happen within your life. One of the important things to understand is that the Bible is going to basically make a distinction. That there's a difference between just being morally changed. In other words, just having different attitudes or C.S. Lewis is going to write like this. There's a difference between just simply becoming a nice person and actually being changed by the gospel. Just because you're a nice person doesn't mean that you're a Christian. Just because you do nice things or just because you go to church, just because you are part of a group of a uh, collection of other Christians doesn't mean that the actual work of salvation has begun in your heart. Because we all know, I mean, we've all met scoundrels that claim to be Christians, all right? I'm one of them, all right? Your pastor is one of them. The point that I would make is that you can't base salvation solely upon how nice a person is. Paul's point and the Bible's point is that salvation is not what is pressured upon us outwardly, forcing us into conformity. Salvation is God actually giving us a new heart, whereby we act differently. We think differently. We think about God differently. We've got different understanding about who God is. We relate differently to different people. In other words, Christianity actually changes our position and our disposition towards even our enemies. And the reason why it does that is because what it does is it demonstrates to us that we once were enemies with God, yet God showed kindness to us. Therefore, we're changed. And the way that God does this, and when God does this work of salvation in our lives, like I said earlier, he comes and takes up residency inside of us so that we have actually the power of God living in us changing us from the inside out. And what Paul's going to talk about in Galatians chapter 5 is he begins to introduce to us these nine characteristic traits. He's going to call them the fruit of the Spirit. And what these are are basic elements of who God is, characteristic traits, really, of who God is. That's why he calls them the fruit of the Spirit as opposed to actions of the flesh. In other words, because God's Spirit lives inside of us, therefore... The actions or the attributes or the characteristic traits of God become a part of us intrinsically, not forced upon us. Paul's not forcing you saying, be loving. Paul's not forcing you saying, be peaceful. Paul's not forcing you saying, be joyful. That's what religion does. In fact, religion says if you're not joyful, it's because you're a bad Christian. I mean, Maybe you've been in that church or you were in that Bible study and you walked out of that situation when someone said, just be joyful. 
Don't worry, just be happy. Do you feel happier? No. Do you, when, when someone just simply says, be peaceful, do you feel more at peace? Is there more of a calm in your heart? Is there more of a stability about your character? No. Because just being told to do these things don't really change you. That's Paul's point. Religion tells you what must be done, but it doesn't give you the engine. It doesn't give you the power to do these things. Paul is going to say the power to do these things is actually God himself who lives inside you, and now it becomes a part of who you are intrinsically. It's a gift from God. You didn't earn it. You didn't buy it. You couldn't have purchased it. God gave it to you. Now you are being transformed. So whereby once when you were fearful and not loving, now you're learning to love, learning to love God, learning to love your friends, learning to love even your enemies. That's the work of God. Whereas once you were always bummed and upset and never happy, now God's actually working within your heart joy. Like you guys looked at last week through Pastor James teaching you guys. Today we're going to be taking a look at the third element or characteristic trait or fruit of the Spirit, and he describes it as peace, love, joy, and peace. And he's going to talk about how God's peace works in our lives. Peace is something that's very important for us to understand. The opposite of peace is turmoil, anxiety, crippling fear. That's the opposite of peace. Sometimes, oftentimes, we need to look at peace in our lives is Sometimes we think of anxiety or fears as being emotions that just merely need to be managed. Oftentimes, anxieties and fears are not emotions that need to be managed. Oftentimes, they're dispositions or attitudes that need to be repented of. Because sometimes the reason why we're fearful, the reason why we're full of anxieties, is because somewhere within our heart is an element of distrust with regard to our dad with regard to our Father, who loves us. That's what Paul's going to be moving towards, is to point out that when the work of the Spirit is is, is taking place in action in your life, something begins to change inside you. You begin to discover your Father who loves you, your Father who takes good care of you. So that's what we're going to be taking a look at here today. And so one of the things I really want to jump into now is taking a look at the Scriptures that we'll be taking a look at. I want to read them. And then we'll get to work on these things. I'll pray, then we'll get to work on them. The first of which is Galatians chapter 5, 22. Again, we already looked at this. I'm not going to read the whole verse. But the fruit of the Spirit is peace. That's what we're going to be sort of um, drilling into today. Secondly, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 says this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there is anything excellence, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Verse 11, I've learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and and I know how to abound. In all circumstances, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So Paul's basically going to tell us something really important is that he's learned something about life. You know what I love about this passage here is that um, if you look at the writing that Paul writes in Philippians, um, this is actually written, depending upon whatever time you would actually date the book of Galatians, Galatians was written probably anywhere between 6 to 13 years earlier. So here's what I love about this, is in Galatians, Paul talks about, look, the fruit of the Spirit is peace. So between 6 to 13 years later, Paul's writing the subject matter that's going on in Philippians. What I love about this is you can look at a guy like Paul and say, Paul's not just making this stuff up. Paul's actually living this. He's not just somebody that's just pumped on Jesus today, then three years later, the fire's gone out. He's not just some guy that's just theoretically throwing out ideas and concepts and saying, wouldn't it be wonderful if peace existed? And then three years later, you come back and you find out the guy's just, just all messed up and worked. And, but that's not Paul. Years later, I mean, between 6 to 13 years later, Paul's even going deeper into this whole concept, this whole idea, this whole reality of peace. So he writes a whole entire section 
in this great book of Philippians to a group of believers living in a city called Philippi about peace. Ironically, guess where Paul's writing this from? <laughs> Prison. Prison. All right? He's not like writing it from the Mediterranean Sea, like, you know, laying out, sun tanning. He's literally in prison, and prisons back then were nasty, all right? Think of, think of a Mexican jail, all right? If you ever, I grew up in Southern California, so when we'd go down surfing, it was always the joke to not get thrown into a Mexican jail, all right? They're just bad, all right? And so Paul's like, I, I, I was in jail, or I'm in prison, and I want to tell you about something. I want to tell you about a secret I've learned. I've learned that no matter what type of circumstance I'm in, whether or not I have plenty, buffet line, lots of food, lots of amazing things to enjoy, lots of good drinks to drink, lots of good food to enjoy, lots of good friendships to indulge in, or if I have nothing, there's no friends there, no food to eat, no drink, no water, no luxuries, nothing. Paul says, I've learned a stability. I've, I've learned to have a poise about myself. There's an equilibrium about who I am and how I live. I'm not up and down. I'm not in these places where in one moment I'm radically up, radically excited, and next I'm completely depressed, destroyed, and completely gone. Paul's like, I've learned to have this equilibrium, this poise. Paul's going to tell us about that, and he's going to attach the word peace to it. It's the exact same word that Paul uses in the book of Galatians, this idea of peace. That's what he's going to talk about. I want to jump in, first of all, and just kind of understand what biblical peace is. Before we do that, let's pray. Let's jump in. God, we need your help to understand what peace is. Lord, we just realize that so many things in this life, in our world, even today, can keep our minds full of anxiety. So many uncertainties in this world, so many things that we're just not sure of, issues even with just earthquakes and fires and tsunamis and diseases and job stability and the market and just so many things in our lives. And then there's personal things with regard to friendships and marriages and our children and our family members, and roommates, and whether or not we're going to pay our mortgage. And God, there are so many things in our minds that can so easily, so quickly cause us to fall into this category of anxiety. God, I just ask that you would help us. Help us to anchor into the same things that Paul anchored into. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing is, is question is this, you know, what, what is biblical peace? I want to try to go through this as quickly as I can. The first one is this, best way I'd answer it is this. It's not the absence of strife and turmoil. It's the presence of God himself. Uh, take a look at what Paul says. This is in verse 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. He says, will guard your hearts. Sometimes we think of peace as being the absence of all sorts of difficulties. But actually what Paul's saying is he uses a word here, it will guard your heart. It's actually kind of an interesting Greek word. It's a Greek word, frueo, which literally means uh, an army or a garrison. So if you can think first century, think of this little town or this little village kind of on the outskirts of some sort of an urban area, which is very vulnerable and prone to attack. And, uh, you know, you're, you're completely fragile. Your whole entire existence is fragile. I mean, there's no police, um, you know, they didn't have the type of structures and systems that we do other than like the Roman guards and all that. Um, but what Paul's saying is that it's very interesting is that even though they didn't have police forces back then, Paul's saying, um, really the peace that I have, it's almost like the army of God is encompassing my heart. So it's not that there is no turmoil or there is no difficulties or hardships in my life. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, but the reality is, is that I know between me and the hardships and the turmoil and the troubles and the difficulty and the oppressions and all of these elements that lead towards anxiety, between me and those things is the presence of God himself. It's like an army encompassing around me. It's like an army that's protecting me against all of these things. That's what's between me and all of these things. And when you know when you know that the army of God like that is guarding your heart, Paul says, you can sleep on that. You can go to sleep on that. You can rest well. The second thing is that biblical peace uh, is that it's an inner calm and stability that's actually independent of circumstances. We kind of get that very clearly in verse 11 where it says, I've learned in whatever state or situation I'm in to be content. 
I know how to be brought low, how to abound. In every, circumstances I've, uh, or every circumstance, I've learned how to have the secret of plenty and to hunger and to be in abundance as well as to be in need. Now, I don't in any way want to look down upon any of the types of circumstances that you and I go through or to invalidate the emotional experience that we go through those things with. But the reality is, is that oftentimes many of the things that you and I find ourselves going through in life that really cause um, anxiety or fears inside of us is it might be our response to a television program, you know, where we see something on the news, you know, earthquake's going to happen, we freak out. There's no, like, actual evidence that anything's going to happen, but we just freak out. We become full of anxiety, or we hear some sort of, like, you know, sickness, like, I can be sick, might die, you know, and you might start kind of making up your own types of, you know, symptoms to it, whatever. You kind of can freak yourself out. You're like, who's he talking about? I'm talking about myself. I can do this myself, all right? So I'm actually giving you my own prescription and description of things that go on in my own life. But the reality is, is that we have oftentimes things that we look at in our lives and we think, because, you know, I didn't get that raise, you know, this is not me now, because uh, I don't even own my house, but, you know, like, I, you know, the issues that we struggle with and we deal with sometimes even in our own lives, like, I can't put the room addition on the house because I didn't get the permits, that's a horrible bummer, I'm full of stress and anxiety, or, you know, I didn't get the car that I really wanted, or I didn't get the job or the promotion that I wanted, or some of you students might be like, I'm not sure if I'm going to graduate, and your entire life is sort of wrapped up in that, your identity is wrapped up in that, the next, you know, 20, 30, 40 years of your life are wrapped up into that whole reality. And all of these things can cause great turmoil and anxiety. And again, like I said, I don't want to in any way put those things down. But I want you to at least look at them in comparison to the Apostle Paul. Paul wasn't dealing with, um, you know, whether or not I'm going to get that job promotion or whether or not I'm going to be able to put that room addition on my house, whether or not I'm going to get married or whether or not, you know, you know I, I'm actually going to have a baby one of these days or a child. You've got to understand a little bit of something about Paul the Apostle. Um, Paul was not a super saint. Paul was just a normal human being, just like you and I. He had the same types of struggles. Paul made some decisions in his life where he actually was a church planner missionary. Uh, it was very likely Paul, uh, if he was married, lost his wife, never speaks anything about his wife, so it's very likely he didn't have a wife, didn't have any kids, uh, was on the road a lot, uh, planting churches all over the place. Uh, Paul talks about having all sorts of shipwrecks. Paul talks about being beaten up by robbers, having all of his goods stolen. Paul talks about being in prison. Paul's writing this epistle in prison. So Paul is actually talking about literally life and death situations that he's going through. It's not just simply like, you know, whether or not we're going to get that room addition, whether or not I'm going to get that raise, whether or not I'm going to get the same amount of money that I was hoping to get back for my taxes so I can go on vacation. And if I don't go on vacation, I'm going to be tick. You know, th these are not the things that Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about, I, I, I hope I live tomorrow. <laughs> um, it'd be awesome if I get like a canister of water tomorrow. That'd be sweet. Like, Paul's, Paul's in some of these circumstances, and Paul's like, look, I've learned, I've learned even in the moment of having great plenty, or even in the, in the moments of having absolute nothing, I've learned to have this poise. I've learned to have the sense of just peace, shalom, in the middle of these hard things. So whatever Paul's talking about is completely independent of circumstances. Okay? Does that make sense? It's, it's all I'm simply trying to say to get our minds to understand that the type of peace that Paul's talking about is not, is not the removal of difficulties. It's the presence of God. And it's the type of peace that can actually be had in the middle of some of the most traumatic, life-changing difficulties you can ever imagine. And Paul says, I have that type of peace. And all of us, I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, We've, we've met people like that before, haven't we? And we've, we've met people that have had literally everything stripped from them. And they're not bitter. They're not cantankerous. They're not grumpy. They're not always looking at something to complain about. In fact, quite the opposite. They're joyful. They're like serving in the homeless overflow shelter. They're helping out in the church. They're giving money away. They're just blessings to be around, even though their lives have been full of great turmoil and possible scenarios that lead towards anxiety. So the point that I would make is that make sure that you understand biblically the way the Bible is going to identify what peace is. So with that being said, Paul's going to identify 
the seek, these secrets to peace, because in verse 12 he's going to talk about, I've learned the secret of peace. The actual word that he uses there can be translated mystery um, or lessons. And so I think one of the ESV actually translated, translates it as the secret of peace. I like that. So Paul's basically giving us a little bit of a secret as to what he learned, how to have this peace, even in the midst of great difficulties and hardships, um, and, uh, and, and how to continue to move forth even in the midst of great trials, and yet keep this sense of equilibrium and poise and keep moving forward. So here's what Paul's going to say. The first thing that Paul's going to tell us that he learned is that it has to do with gratitude. Being able to have peace in the midst of hardships, being able to have peace in the midst of difficulties, you've got to have an attitude that is sort of full of thankfulness, full of gratitude, full of thanking God for who he is and what he is. Listen to how he puts this. Uh, Verse 6. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. So Paul actually links peace with prayer. And it's not just any type of prayer, like ambiguous type praying. Paul's praying is really an acknowledgement that there's a God. And this God is one God, and that this one God rules all things. Paul's idea of prayer is not some sort of weird, mysterious, some people don't praise because they think of prayer as being like this very mysterious type thing where you've got to get yourself into some type of mode. And in reality, I think the way Paul is going to identify prayer is Paul is really, or prayer is really your interaction between you and your dad, your spiritual dad, your heavenly father. I think sometimes we've got to remove sort of that mysteriousness of, of it, the mystique of prayer. Just bring it to what it really is. It's just an inter- interaction between you and your heavenly dad. He loves you. He loves to talk to you. He loves to interact with you. He loves to fellowship with you. He loves you. And so Paul is saying, I learned that when I pray, when I pray with gratitude, thanking God while I'm praying, I get this peace. See, the funny thing is oftentimes when we think about this, we're like, well, shouldn't you thank God once you get the answer to your prayer? This is radically the opposite. See, because most of us, we think, well, I'll thank God once I get what I'm asking God for. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, I'm thanking God while I'm praying. Not even sure if I'm even going to get what I'm asking for. But one thing I am sure of is that God is God. See, oftentimes we base our peace upon whether or not we get what we are expecting God to give to us. In other words, let me put it this way. We make God the ends to our means, or the means to our end. We look at this end, this thing that we're really hoping for, we're begging God for, whether it be a good marriage, whether it be a job, whether it be a car or a career or something. We're like, God, I'll do anything for you if you just give this to me. And then we don't get it, and then we're ticked. We're upset with God. We accuse God. At the end of the day, all that simply reveals is God's not really God. God was our means to our true God. God's not great, at least in our minds. He's, he's the means to our true source of happiness, our true joy. And it's in a mistaken joy. It's a mistaken joy that thinks career's where I'm going to find peace. Career's where I'm going to find joy. Marriage is where I'm going to be happy. Having kids is where I'm really going to find joy and peace. And so, God, I will thank you. I will thank you as long, as soon as you give me all of that, then I'll be happy. And Paul's saying, no, 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 that's, that's not what prayer with gratitude is. Prayer with gratitude is when you pray, you thank God for who God is, irregardless of whether or not he gives to you what you want. In other words, you're anchoring into God as ultimate, not your prayer request as ultimate. Let me give you an example, too. First one, for me personally. When I was around 17, 18 years old, uh, I had a girlfriend, and, and I thought for sure I was going to be married to this gal. Totally thought for sure I was going to be married to this gal. Um, I actually thought that God had spoken to me, and uh, you know, felt that you know, God had really laid upon my heart, spoken to me, and had showed me that we were going to get married, we were going to go be missionaries, we were going to do all these things, and all these things were going to happen. And, uh, and then, you know, a few months later, she broke up with me. And 
my, my life was absolutely crushed on a number of different levels. I mean, one level, because I completely misheard God, all right? That, that shook me, because I, I really thought that I heard God, but in reality, I think I heard God through my own uh, lens. <laughs> and the other thing was that it shook me because I had actually made an idol out of this girl, and I thought that she was going to be my wife. I thought we were going to get married. I thought everything was going to be great, and God took her away from me. And the reality is, I can look back now and say I'm very thankful that God did that. Because I just celebrated 20 great long years with my real wife just last week of marriage. So, so I realized that obviously that was not God's best. It wasn't God's plan for me. I mean, I can look back now, obviously, in retrospect and say, praise God. Thank you, God, for not answering that prayer. Thank you for being God. Thank you for being sovereign over that choice and decision. And when we broke up, I mean, I, I think it was the very first time in my entire life I started fasting and praying. I mean, like, I'd pray, but I never, like, fasted. And to me, I was like, I'll fast. Maybe that'll get her back. And I started making all these bargains and deals, like, God, I'll serve at church if you give her to me again. God, I'll help out. I'll tithe maybe for the first time in my life. And I'll do all these things if you just do this for me. I was like making all these bargains with God. Sometimes you guys do that. We all do that. And the reality is, this, it's just silly, because it somehow it assumes that God is actually a bargaining God. That, because it assumes that God actually needs the things, the bartering chips that we throw on the table. We're like, God, I'll give you my life. God's like, I got angels. Are you kidding me? They got wings. You can barely even run a mile, all right? I don't need you. You're like, I'm good at video games. God's like, I don't care. I created a pulsar. You don't impress me. All right? I don't need what you have. And the point that I would make is that it's just not a good idea to bargain with God. The second example that I would use of how it's important to say thank, be thankful to God in the midst of things that we oftentimes don't even understand. I'll give an example, the greatest example of all. The Bible portrays this picture of when Jesus died on the cross. Uh, prior to that, he was tortured. He was heinously uh, destroyed, and just his beard was plucked out of his face, and he was, uh, you know, hammered to the cross, nailed to the cross. And literally that moment, you can imagine this, you know, period of two, three, four, five hours in which the apostles saw all of this circumstance going on, all of these things happening to their own master. They were literally stripped. Their entire ministry um, had this incredibly abrupt ending to it. And it wasn't just like, oh, he died of the fever. Uh, we don't know what happened. It was that he was, he was brutally murdered to the point of he was shamed, publicly shamed, and therefore that shame was uh, brought upon everyone who followed Jesus. It was shameful. Now, one of the apostles, I guarantee it, sat there, looked at the cross, looked at Jesus on the cross, and thanked God. God, thank you for this. This is awesome. Not one of them. Guarantee it. They didn't understand what God was doing. Just like you and I don't understand oftentimes what God's doing in our lives, in the circumstances, in the moment where we find ourselves working through these things. The disciples did not understand the cross. But the ironic thing is that the cross literally becomes the greatest, most unbelievably prompting result of worship, prayer, and thanksgiving in retrospect. In other words, there's never been an event in all of history that's garnered more thanksgiving than the cross, but only in retrospect. You understand that? Look, what, I don't know what you're going through in your life. Some of you might be going through gnarly things that are generating all sorts of anxiety in your life. I don't know what's going on inside your life, some of you, but the reality is, is, is I, I, I do know this. I do know this is that we are always prone to judge God, judge the circumstances based upon the information that we have in the here, in the now. What I'm trying to say is that that information is always premature. It's always limited. And it's always insufficient. We will never fully know the extent of what God's doing until we look back in retrospect and see 
his grace shine through. And so what Paul's trying to say is pay it forward when you pray. Just give thanks to God already. Because you already know, you already know that everything God does is good. You know what happens? There's a peace about that. There's a sense of saying, you know, God's answering my prayer is independent of my stupid little deals with him. Is totally independent of my little bargain chips put on the table. And it's completely dependent upon his good, kind grace. And I can thank him for that. That puts peace in my bank account. The second thing that Paul says that I also learned he also kind of realized that not only does it have to do with really the sense of um, having gratitude, but it also has to do with our thoughts. We have to think proper thoughts. And here's what Paul's going to say. Finally, brothers, in verse 8, whatever's true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's anything that's of excellence, anything that's worthy of praise, he says, think on these things. Um, the ironic thing in our culture is that Everything in our culture tells us, don't think upon these things. In fact, the, the fact that you're thinking about these things is your problem, right? You're thinking too much about the issues going on in this world. Stop thinking about them. Stop thinking about earthquakes. Stop thinking about the fact that you may lose your job. Stop thinking about the fact that the bank may come and repossess your house or your car. Stop thinking about the fact that, you know, someone may come and deliver some, serve you with papers. Stop thinking about those things. And... The answers that oftentimes come from our culture, all right, here's four words that kind of end with eight, all right, here they are. Medicate, we like to medicate ourselves, meaning drugs, alcohol, we do something to somehow get ourselves and our minds out of it to stop thinking. Our minds are thinking too much, we're racing upon these things, our minds are just constantly going 100 miles a minute, so we want to medicate. We want to medicate. The second thing, oftentimes, we want to just deviate our minds away from these things, deviate our thoughts. And so what we end up doing is we sort of um, uh, let our minds be taken away through little trivial things of entertainment, all right? Um, look, at the end of the day, this is one of the reasons why uh, sometimes people really get super engrossed into movies or books or, you know, just even music for that matter, um, video games. Porn for both guys and gals, people get involved in all sorts of things to sort of deviate their mind, their thinking away from the trauma and from, away from the anxiety. The reality is, is let me try to put it to you the reason why we do this, is it really boils down to this, is we don't like the narrative of our lives that we're living. It's hard for us. So you know what we do? We look for another narrative. We look for a different narrative. And we put ourselves in that different narrative. It's one of the reasons why we love music. You can sit there and listen to music all the time, and you hear a certain song, and you just listen to it over and over and over again. It might be because of the music or the actual melody, but sometimes even the lyrics sort of take us up in it. We love it because it really sort of pulls us out of our narrative, at least temporarily, and puts us into another narrative where we sort of fantasize about being in there. But some of you people like are into like hardcore video gamers or some video gamers are hardcore into this type of stuff is because it's a way for them to be pulled out of reality and get into a second life or the office a second second life all right you can get out of your life and into something else to make another type of a reality it's a way to deviate your mind into something else all right, another way in which we do this oftentimes is to tolerate. There are other people that are just hardcore. They're like, look, just buck up and deal with it. Just deal with it. These are like hardcore people, right? Just like hardcore people. They're really hard to be around because you talk to them, they have zero sympathy. They're just hardcore, right? The fourth one is meditate. I'm talking about not scriptural meditation. I'm talking about Eastern types of meditation, which is the idea of just empty your mind. That's the whole goal, the whole point of Easternized type of me meditation is to empty your mind. The answer would be this. Your mind is the problem. You think too much. There's too many things going on in your thoughts. Your thoughts are racing too much. Too many issues going on in your mind. Get your mind off of it through medication, through deviation, through all sorts of other means, tolerating it through just meditating. Get your mind off of it. It's very interesting that Paul actually says the exact opposite. He says the way to peace is to actually think. 
But here's what Paul says. You got to think on the right things. Whatever things are pure. Whatever things are lovely. Now, if you hear that and you're just like, well, it's kind of weird. I mean, Paul's just like telling people to think good thoughts. I mean, that's why sometimes, I mean, I feel like I remember hearing this verse a long time ago when I was first brand new Christian. I thought, seems kind of weird. It's like all just being happy, right? You know, Paul just wants people to put on a happy face and be okay with everything that's going on in their life. Just be happy. It's not what Paul's saying. If you think that's what Paul's saying, you don't know Paul. Because what Paul's actually saying is he's saying what you need to think on are theological realities of God himself. That's what's just. That's what's true. Whatever things are just, whatever things are true, whatever things are pure. Paul's saying, you know what you really need to do? You don't need to stop thinking. You don't need to get your mind off of everything. What you need to do is you need to put your mind on the right things. You need to anchor in deeply into the character and nature and theological understandings and attributes of God. That's our problem oftentimes, is we don't think about that. We get struck with trials, tribulations, anxieties. We don't think about God. It's the last place we go. I'll give you an example. Years ago, um, I went through this series, long series. It felt very long, prolonged series. One of the houses that we lived in, we lived in a lot of different houses. We rented all over the place, still rent. And uh, thank God we've lived in a house that haven't sold out from underneath this, which is great. So uh, we're not worried about moving. But any of the point, anyways, uh, I, I remember this one house that we lived in, just was, I was having all these anxieties, all these panic issues going on in my life. I couldn't sleep at night. I just remember for like weeks, it was just constant, it was just ongoing, and not necessarily because of any particular thing going on in my life, but the reality was is I just, I realized the only thing that brought me calm was I'd go on these long walks with God. Just go outside, it was freezing cold at night, I remember periodic nights and just seeing my own breath and just going for these long walks and just thinking about God considering who God is, understanding the bigness of God, trying to get some perspective on my life. I mean, nobody, if you're going through a hard time, if you struggle with suicidal thoughts, nobody's going to tell you, look, the antidote to suicidal thoughts is ask yourself the question, why are you here? Like, really? I mean, that's maybe the reason why you feel suicidal. It's because you're struggling with these big, radical realities of your life. You know what Paul's actually saying? No, no, no. Ask those thoughts. Ask those questions. But make sure that they're within the context of God. Drill down in God. Paul says, you know what you'll find? You'll find peace. The reason why we don't have peace is because we medicate or meditate or deviate our thoughts away rather than thinking deep theological thoughts on the character and nature of who God is. The final thing is this, is that this ultimately has to do with what we love. Verse 8, Paul's going to say again, finally, brothers, whatever's true. He's going to go on to say, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything that's of excellence, if there's anything that's worthy of praise, think about these things. And here's what Paul's really trying to, to drill down on. He's like, look, it's not just about what you think about God. But you know, at the end of the day, you actually got to find God lovely. Your heart's got to be in this. You've got to see God as lovely. You've got to see God as beautiful. When you see God as beautiful, that does something to you. It gives you a sense of endurance. It gives you a sense of reality that, that God's not against you. God's not angry with you. That the anxieties and the fears and the hardships and the trauma and the heart difficulties that you're going through in your life, it's not because God is angry with you. It's not his judgment against you. That's one of the things that the devil loves to cause people to think. If you're a Christian, it's like the reason why you're going through these things is God's angry with you. Paul would say, stop thinking that and go to the cross. See that Jesus has already taken all God's wrath. God is not angry at you. God has been propitiated. His wrath has been satisfied. He's not angry with you. So Paul's whole point is that we've got to find Jesus lovely, find God beautiful, find God big and glorious, and think upon the loveliness and the beauty and the greatness of God. Paul uses a word there. He says whatever is virtuous or of value, it's the word that actually 
the Greeks would use a lot. In fact, the Stoke, there was a group of philosophers called the Stokes in the first century. And there was like a group of people, and sometimes we, they get a bad you know, rap as people think of them as like being like Spock, right? They're just emotionless people. But in reality, Stokes weren't like that. It's just kind of a caricature of them. Stokes were people that actually were striving to understand the great virtue. Stokes basically looked at life and they said, look, what you love matters. What, lo- what you put your heart on, what you love actually matters. Stokes would say this, look, we discover that if you love career as ultimate, you could lose your career. And if you love your career and your heart and your attitude and your love and your peace and your joy are tied up in your career, that if you lose your career, because you can't, you can't control your career. You can't control the, 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 the force of life. You can't control these things. And if you put your affections in those things, and if you lose those things, then you'll be bummed. You'll have no peace. You'll have anxiety. So the Stokes actually were looking for peace. They were actually striving for peace. And they would even go on so far as to say, look, same thing with family. If you've got a family and you love your kids, ultimately, above and beyond everything else, you make them the chief good of all other things, then what will end up happening is that uh, something can happen to your child. It can die. Something can get sick. Something can go bad. And then your peace will also die with your child. So Stokes would say, really what, what you need to do is you need to put your hope in that which is um, immutable. A big word which be, means unchanging. And they would say the only immutable attribute or thing that you have complete control over is your own virtue. Meaning how you act, how you respond to life's difficulties. So if you put your hope in your own virtue, then you can somehow, um, you have control over that. How you respond to these things will actually give you some level of equilibrium and poise. And what Paul's actually going to say is this, is that that's true. But the chief virtue is not us. Chief virtue is Jesus. He's the one who we find virtuous. He's the one that has moral beauty. He's the one that we find lovely. And Paul says, what you love matters. Let me give you an example. If you love as an ultimate thing, your career, if your career goes down the tubes because you have no way of controlling your career, where are you? Where do you go? Where do you move from there? Do you have joy? No, you've lost everything. You don't have anything to hold on to or go back to. The Bible said I was listening to uh, a guy by the name of Tim Keller talks about how one of the things he was kind of looking at, St. Augustine, you know, one of the early church fathers, he kind of puts together sort of a composite of ideas that uh, St. Augustine said. And here's basically the gist or the idea of it. Is he kind of pointed out that really... Augustine was well aware of the Stoics and well aware of the philosophical understanding of the first century and the third and fourth century in which he lived. And so Augustine basically said something to this effect, that only love of the immutable can bring tranquility. Here's his point. Immutable means that which is unchanging. The only one thing that is unchanging is God. You love career, it can change. You, you love your investments, they can change. You love your spouse above and beyond all other things. They can change. What Augustine is not saying is don't love anything. Pull yourself away from them and stop being and having any type of affection or enjoyment in things of this world. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying that if you anchor all of your hope in things that are mutable, that you have no control over, you'll have no peace. You'll be full of anxiety. Last week when my wife and I were celebrating our anniversary down in Cabo on Saturday night, I got, a, I got a, a text from my daughter that her math teacher just died. Um, the crazy thing about it is that his oldest daughter, who's actually an eighth grader, uh, played basketball with my daughter uh, in the season just ended about three weeks ago. And the crazy thing is I, I just, his name was Mr. Melton, and I, and I just saw him like three weeks ago, two weeks before we left. And I was, I was so just tripping out. I just went to the funeral yesterday um, and to have his wife there, and she shared, and she just, I mean, I don't know, man. She just had a joy about her, a peace about her. And one of the most absolutely amazing things is that Mr. Melton was a Christian. He was with Jesus today. It was unbelievable. It was so beautiful. One of the most just touching moments, I think, of the, of the whole ceremony was they had this slideshow, and one of his daughters wrote this little note saying, the most, th- the most important thing I'm going to miss from my daddy is his big bear hugs. 
I'm going to miss my daddy's hugs. And the reality is, is that they're, even though they were rocked with great trauma having their own daddy die, there was a poise about them. They weren't bitter. They weren't cantankerous. They weren't angry. They weren't full of vile. There's something about them. They found Jesus lovely above and beyond all other things. God is the one thing, one thing that death, which is our greatest foe, can't take away. If you put your hope in anything else other than God, death can take it all away from you. It takes away your riches, takes away your spouse, takes away your children, takes away your job, takes away everything. Death is the one thing that actually brings us to God. Our greatest foe, greatest enemy, is actually a doorway to God. You put your hope in that which is immutable, and that's what leads to tranquility. I want to finish with this thought. Okay, you can hear all this stuff and be like, okay, great. Uh, I got to be grat- full of gratitude. All right, I'll do that. Um, I got to be, you know, loving the right things. All right, I'll do that. I got to be thinking the right things. All right, if you walk out of here and that's your mentality of like, I'm going to think the right things, I'm going to love the right things, I'm going to be thankful all the time, you're going to get out of here and that's going to last like two days, max. All right, it's got a shelf life, an expiration date. All right, Tuesday, it's done. And you're going to be all bummed, full of despair again. Because what I'm trying to tell you is that even though all of these things Paul is going to say are these secrets, they don't give you fuel. They don't give you power to do them. The only thing that gives you power to do them is you got to see Jesus lovely. I want to finish with this last verse, and we'll wrap it up with a little video clip. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 20, says a very interesting verse. It says, The wicked are like the tossing of the sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. It says, There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Isaiah is writing this, and basically he's talking about all of Israel, and really, in an even broader, more generalized sense, all of humanity, all of us. C.S. Lewis is going to describe our offense against God. It's not just that we've done one or two bad things, but C.S. Lewis is going to describe it as if all humanity has actually taken up arms and marched against God. That's what humanity has done. God describes that, puts a label over that, and says all humanity is wicked. All humanity has taken up arms and rebellion to fight against the great good God. Therefore, God says there is no peace. There is no peace for the wicked. Isaiah is going to go on to prophesy in Isaiah 53, actually a few chapters before that. It's all part of the same context. Here's what he says. How did God bring us peace? What was God's plan to bring us peace? Here's what Isaiah says. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. What Isaiah is going to say is you want to know how God has secured peace for you and I? It's not by coercing us, telling us to be peaceful. The way that God has supernaturally secured our peace is to come into this world laying aside the peace that Jesus knew. To come into this world to take upon himself our anxieties, our turmoil, our shame, our grief upon himself, to bear that himself to the full weight of it. Isaiah is going to tell us it was through this transaction he gave us his peace. This peace of God is free to you and I. It's a gift. But it cost God everything. When you understand what God had done for you to secure your peace that's lasting, immutable, you understand the price that he paid to get that to you, to usher that to you, to deliver that to you, that melts our hearts because we realize we have a big dad, a big father who loves us so much that he's willing to stop at no level to spare no expense to bring us the peace that only he has that is only lasting for all eternity. It's a great God we have. I want to finish by watching this little video clip. It's about a guy by the name of Horatio Spafford. 
I'm going to have the worship team come on up. I'm going to have, well, let's turn off all the lights right now. And I want you guys to see this. The team will come on up. And as soon as the video clip's done, uh, we're just going to sing some songs of worship. And uh, that's a tad bit late. And if you guys need to feel like you need to pick up your kiddos, that'd be, that'd be great. And um, just be sensitive to the workers who work real hard with our children. And, um, and then we'll just worship for a little bit. But I want you to watch this video clip because what's amazing about this guy is he endured a lot of difficulty and hardship. And yet, rather than becoming cantankerous and angry and bitter, uh, he found himself full of joy and peace even in the midst of it. So take a look at this video clip and then we'll sing some songs of worship. Horatio Spafford was a man familiar with death and tragedy. The Spaffords were grieving over the death of their first son to scarlet fever when the great Chicago fire decimated the city. Horatio, a successful lawyer and real estate investor, lost everything. After the fire, Horatio and his wife Anna were attempting to pick up the pieces when a good friend, the great evangelist preacher D.L. Moody, encouraged him to take a much-needed vacation. Moody was doing a preaching stint in England and invited the Spafford family to join him there. Horatio had some business to attend to, so he decided to send his wife and daughters ahead, planning to meet up with them shortly. En route, the Spafford ship collided with an iron sailing vessel, and all four daughters drowned. Anna was one of only a handful of survivors. Horatio immediately departed for England to rejoin his devastated wife. When the ship's captain told him that they were passing over the scene of the accident, he retired to his cabin. Overcome with sorrow, he wrote, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. These words were eventually set to music and became the great hymn of the same name, it is well with my soul. However, the story did not stop there. A few years later, Horatio and Anna had two more children, a son and a daughter. But this son also contracted scarlet fever and died at just four years old. Horatio's life was marked by persistent tragedy and death. In the course of his life, he lost business and real estate and saw the death of six of his eight children. However, he did not surrender himself to anger, sorrow, and despair. Though he wrestled with these things, to be sure, instead, he defiantly declared his hope and trust in his sovereign Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Echoing the words of Paul, he learned to be content in any situation, even death and loss. Ultimately, the Spaffords turned their grief into mercy ministry, founding a small community of believers in Jerusalem, working to aid the poor and needy in the early days of World War I. Horatio's great song challenges us to fight for joy in the midst of tragedy and death, to defiantly declare that in Jesus, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul.